In this episode, we'll be taking a look at the Munich Putsch of 1923 when Hitler tries to seize power, its causes, its consequences, and what happens to the Nazi party up until 1929. In the last episode, we looked at how Adolf Hitler managed to secure and consolidate his power within the SDAP party. Um, now we're going to take a look at Hitler's attempt in November 1923 to try and completely overthrow the Weimar Republic. We know that um, he had a hatred for democracy and that he didn't like um, the Weimar Republic, but let's take a little bit of a closer look at the causes for why um, this Munich Putsch, as it is known, or the Beer Hall Putsch, actually happens in November 1923. So in terms of longer term causes, we know that there are a lot of people in the Weimar Republic who have grievances towards this uh, new democracy, people that don't like the Treaty of Versailles, people that feel like Germany's lost its status um, and its power, they feel stabbed in the back or dolstos, um, they're blaming uh, November criminals for signing the armistice, etc. Um, and that means that there is space there for nationalist right-wing parties parties to uh, gain support. So Hitler feels like, um, you know, his his support is, is growing as time goes on. Um, and by 1923, um, the NSDAP has 50,000 members, and that's mainly just in the southern um, states of Bavaria. Um, and the Bavarian uh, state leaders were not actually fans of the Weimar Republic either and so um, Hitler maybe felt that there there would be um, more support even from like within uh, the government there to try and overthrow the Republic. A medium term cause is actually the model that Mussolini in Italy showed Hitler. Um, so when Hitler was reorganising the DAP into the NSDAP, he was often looking at one Mussolini and his black shirts um, and his famous march on Rome uh, were doing. So in 1923, Mussolini's paramilitary force, these black shirts I just mentioned, um, they basically take over um, the democratic government of Italy that was established and, and accepted him as a new dictator. So Hitler feels like, well, if Mussolini can do it in Italy, then I should be able um, to do it as well. And, and similar to Hitler, Mussolini's um, quite a good speaker, um, very strong leader, strong imagery um, surrounding him. Uh, they have similar kind of like salutes and uniforms and symbols, etc. And also crucially, um, Mussolini's like party is fascist in its outlook. So it's, it links very closely to what the NSDAP are doing. And he's seeing that actually fascists are gaining success um, in other countries, so why not in Germany as well? In terms of short-term causes for why the Munich Putsch happens in November 1923, I mean, we've talked about 1923 a lot as a big watershed moment for the Weimar Republic. You've got hyperinflation at its uh, very peak. You've got the French troops in marching into the Ruhr Valley. You've got the protests going on in the Ruhr Valley in response to that. You've got um, the Weimar politicians kind of unable to deal with um, these situations as well. And so so 
you know they're printing money and which is causing the hyperinflation so it's making uh the weimar politicians look weak unable to solve problems um and that means that there's again there's kind of like a there's a space there for hitler to exploit that and try and make his own bid for power So what are the events of the Munich Putsch itself? So it begins on the evening of the 8th of November when the Bavarian uh, state government is having a meeting in a beer hall in Munich. Um, and all of a sudden, Hitler with 600 SA troops kind of bursts into this meeting and stands on a table, um, shoots into the ceiling with a revolver and says that he's going to take over um Bavaria and marched to Berlin and overthrew the Weimar Republic. And Ludendorff, who we mentioned before, was this uh, very famous um, army uh, general from the First World War. He was a friend um, of Hitler. He was going to um, be head of the army and Hitler would be the new president of Germany. Now, Gustav von Kahr, who's the leader of the state government of Bavaria, doesn't really have much choice at this point. He's at gunpoint. Hitler's saying, I'm going to be, you know, the the leader of this country. Do you agree? Demands him to, to support him at gunpoint. What's he going to do? Well, of course, he shakes hands and says, OK, um, fine. And at the same time, Ernst Röhm, who has the, um, who's leader of the SA, takes over the local police and army headquarters in Munich. So by that evening on the 8th of November, it seems like things are pretty good. Hitler's, you know, kind of forced um, the Bavarian government into submission and Rome has got the um, p police and army HQ under his control. But there is a crucial thing that is missing here um, because they did not take over the army barracks, which is where the like main army's soldiers are like living and, and, and staying. And so the main army officers, they remain loyal to the Weimar Republic, which is very um, interesting. Another mistake at this point is um, Ludendorff, who was kind of had captured um, Gustav von Kahr and a couple of the other Bavarian state officials. He lets them go. Um, and this is just at the same point when um, Hitler is trying to gather his supporters to lead a kind of big uh, parade march through the um, streets of Munich. And then it seems like, well, hang on, we've just let go the state officials that were on our side. And now they join with the army who are remaining loyal to the Weimar Republic. Um, so they're not going to now support Hitler again. So it's now midday on the 9th of November 1923 and Hitler's got um, almost a thousand SA troops out in the streets um, and about 2,000 other supporters from Munich um, who have joined in this kind of... Um, you know, uprising, um, helped, of course, by the fact that the SA have um, stolen money from some banks to try and bribe them to join in this parade. But Hitler's going to be really disappointed because the majority of the townspeople kind of don't really have any opinion on what is going on and they just remain indifferent and the army who is remaining loyal to the Weimar Republic comes out onto the streets to confront um, Hitler and his group of people that he's gathered together. And this is when chaos starts to ensue because a gunshot is um, heard 
and everyone starts to go crazy. They're trying to um, drag Hitler down uh, to the floor, his bodyguards to protect him. Um, you've got Hermann Goering shot in the thigh. You've got um, a bodyguard going in front of Hitler to try and uh, uh, shield him, who's get, who gets shot with almost 12 bullets. Um, and in the end, 14 of Hitler's supporters and four policemen are shot dead. So at this point, the rebellion is just completely falling apart. You know, like everyone's just trying to run away to escape um, getting shot um, one group enters into empty buildings others are trying to get into people's houses Ludendorff, Röhm and Stryker get arrested Goering manages to escape and um, manages to actually even get out of Germany for a while Hitler gets away in a car uh, like a getaway car um, goes 10 miles 10 miles south of uh, Munich, but then gets found a couple of days later hiding in a wardrobe. So it's, it's just, the Munich Putsch is a complete disaster for Hitler. It was meant to be his big moment um, of overthrowing the Weimar Republic, and it's just completely failed. The major consequences of this is that the NSDAP is actually banned as a political party. Um, Hitler's um, accused of treason and is sent to prison, um, and it's just a big defeat and a big humiliation. However, there are a couple of big takeaways um, from the Munich Putsch that we do uh, need to appreciate and understand. So, I mean, firstly, we know that Hitler's very good at publicity and speaking, and at his trial, he uses it as an opportunity um, to explain why he was trying to overthrow the Weimar Republic. And actually, that gives him a national platform um, to explain what he was trying to do and what he was aiming to achieve. Secondly, he's found guilty of treason, which is basically the like highest crime, like one of the highest crimes in a state because you're trying to completely overthrow um, the government. And yet he's only sentenced to five years in prison, which tells us that the judges and the law courts are very um, favourable to right wing parties. And in fact, Ludendorff was found not guilty um, at all. Um, even more than that, five years is, is is such a short sentence to serve for treason, but Hitler only even serves a couple of months of that. He's sentenced in uh, April of 1924, and by the December, he's out of prison. He also uses that time in prison to write Mein Kampf, which I'll talk a little bit more about um, in a second, but that is going to be really important for solidifying his political um, ideas and uh, to gain uh, more supporters. And that leads on to the other point that actually Hitler realises from the Munich Putsch that a violent overthrow of the Weimar Republic is not going to work. He's going to have to persuade people to vote for him via the democracy and then crush the democracy um, after he has gained complete control of it. So what does Hitler get up to during his time in Landsberg prison? Well, he describes it as a free education at the state's expense. So he kind of enjoyed his time in prison in many ways um, because he had a chance to read widely and to write his own book, which was called Mein Kampf, which is German for My Struggle. Now, Mein Kampf actually um, is comprised of two volumes. The first volume, um, Hitler lays out what he considers to be all the problems that Germany um, faces and um, 
such as uh, the effect that he feels like the Jewish people are having on what he deems the Aryan race or the superior German race. Um, he again sets out the fact that he doesn't like the Treaty of Versailles, that Germany needs more Lebensraum or living space, um, and that is going to create war um, with other countries in order to achieve that. Again, the racial intentions behind what he's saying are made really clear when he says that um, men do not perish as a result of lost wars, but as the result of um, loss of pure blood. So he's essentially setting up here the idea of a big Jewish conspiracy to undermine Aryan rule, um, that the Jewish race is planning to um, intermarry with the Aryan race in order to take over German businesses. And he also um, kind of hammers into the SDP, um, the moderate political party that was generally in control of the uh, Reichstag during the Weimar Republic, saying that there are a lot of Jewish people running uh, this moderate political group. In volume two of Mein Kampf, um, Hitler goes deeper into uh, what the NSDAP actually stands for. And they're kind of four key things here. So the first one is nationalism, which is the kind of belief um, in your uh, country, a strong attachment to your country. Um, and obviously, um, by reversing the Treaty of Versailles, that's going to give Germany more power. Um, and another idea of nationalism is that in, in some forms of nationalism that your country is kind of uh, better than other countries. So again, that links to this idea of Lebensraum or living space um, that the German people should be allowed to expand um, into Russia, for example, um, and take land from Russia drive out the communists, um, who Hitler also doesn't like, um, and give that land to German people. The second point is socialism, um, because remember the NSDAP stands for National Socialist German Workers' Party. Um, so in socialism, the idea is that the state uses money and that is taken uh, via taxes or from industry in general and redistributes it um, across the country so that more people um, get help, let's say, particularly the working class. Um, so, yeah, he wants to use the wealth of uh, industry to benefit uh, the German working people and not just the rich landowners or the middle classes. Thirdly, Hitler believed in totalitarianism. Um, and that means the belief in one strong leader making um, decisions instead of a democracy where there is a lot more debate and compromise. He saw the Weimar Republic as um, weak for having to do this. Um, and actually that if there was just one leader who made decisions that would make uh, things run smoother and uh, be a stronger country. And the fourth and final point is an emphasis on traditional German uh, values. So kind of clear roles for men and women, kind of uh, those uh, freedoms that women uh, started to have under the Weimar Republic that we mentioned um, in the previous episode um, were looked down on. Um, a, more of an emphasis on uh, Christianity, like the morals of Christianity at least, um, but interestingly, the Nazis were quite interested in going even further back in German history to almost a kind of pagan um, beliefs in German folklore, um, such as like in, in music and theatre and things like uh, Valkyries and, and, and this kind of stuff from, from much further back in uh, German history. Thank you.
I mentioned earlier that Hitler only serves about nine months of his five-year sentence and is actually just released um, from prison on the 20th of December 1924. Um, and the NSDAP ban as a political party is lifted by the 16th of February 1925. Um, so actually that means that Hitler is out of prison and the NSDAP is allowed to be a political party again um, and he can kind of relaunch it in a new way. So he decides to kind of reorganise um, the way in which the uh, party is, is structured to try and make it um, even more effective um, so that he doesn't avoid, so, so he can avoid a big um, humiliation like the Munich Putsch again. He knows that he cannot rely on violence and needs to be elected into power. So he needs to use this democratic process of the Weimar Republic to his advantage whilst it's still in existence before he, because if he got power, he wants to completely destroy the democracy. But whilst it still exists, he needs to use it in order to gain the power he wants. So there are three main things that Hitler does with this kind of reorganisation from uh, 1924 to 29. So first of all, he creates um, a central hub for the uh, Nazi party in Munich. So it's like the Nazi HQ, the headquarters. And at this HQ, Hitler decides to essentially kind of run uh, the HQ like a mini government. Um, so Hitler is the leader and he creates departments for all the different things that the party will need. So finance, um, he creates um, a party treasurer called Franz Schwartz, um, who is going to make sure that um, the Nazi party has enough money in order to keep going. Um, he creates a department of foreign affairs, a department of industry, a department of agriculture, a department of education. So just like the government would actually work, but it's actually people with those responsibilities within the pa within the party. He's also, of course, got the SA, the paramilitary um, arm of the party in order to kind of, you know, create those, continue those uh, visual imageries and the parades in the streets, etc. Um, but he also creates a woman section and a youth section. So the German Women's Order um, to try and encourage women to uh, join the party um, and the National Socialist German Students League, which usually we um, know as the Hitler Youth. So that's a kind of uh, place where uh, 14 to 18 year olds can go um, and learn how they, they kind of are doing uh, outdoor activities most of the time, but they are also being indoctrinated in Nazi uh, philosophy and ideology. The second way in which Hitler reorganises the Nazi party is to create a Nazi party across the whole of Germany. So you remember um, that the DAP started in Munich and in the southern Bavarian regions. Um, but what Hitler now does is divide Germany into 35 uh, different uh, regions and to create a, a leader for each of those 35 regions and that leader would be known as a Gauleiter. Now Hitler encourages these Gauleiters to kind of force their way to the top of the leadership like Hitler had done with the DAP um, and two of these Gauleiters who become very important later are Gregor Strasser who becomes the Gauleiter in northern Germany and Joseph Goebbels who becomes the Gauleiter in the Rhineland. What Hitler also uh, tries to do in terms of of uh, gaining more support um, in these different uh, GAUs or regions um, is to try and uh, 
raise money with wealthy industrialists or businessmen, um, hoping that they would be able to control um, the working classes that they, um, you know, worked with. And there's some really important um, German businessmen that do actually um, come on board and give loans to the Nazi party, including uh, Thyssen, Krupp and Bosch. Um, Bosch, you may recognise the name um, because it's still... um, company that makes like washing machines and stuff today. The third way Hitler reorganises the Nazi party from 1924 to 29 um, is by creating the Schutzstaffel or the SS. Now they're going to be really important um, moving forward. But essentially the SA or the brown shirts, um, they were known as kind of like slightly, uh, you know, sometimes hard to control, violent um, people that were joining. Uh, By 1930, the SA had uh, 400,000 members, Um, but in uh, 1925, um, just before, before, the numbers are growing, let's say, up uh, until 1930, he feels like he needs a closer bodyguard because the Munich Putsch had shown him um, that having a like troops that are specifically bodyguards for Hitler, um, they essentially saved him, didn't they, when um, the kind of chaotic um, scene ensued. And they were the ones pushing him uh, to the floor and kind of, you know, uh, getting him out. Um, so he creates like a, a, a separate uh, branch Um, of the SA who are going to be um, considered more important than the SA. So um, they're called the Schutzstaffel, which which means a protection squad. Um, And there are going to be less people in the SS. They're going to be the kind of elite troops, let's say, the ones that have been specifically selected because Hitler trusts them. Um, And so if you're going to be a member of the SS, you're going to kind of be part of the elite of the Nazi party. And in 1925, um, Hitler replaces Ernst Rom as uh, leader of the SA because he's worried that Rom will um, kind of uh, try and maybe take over power with the with the brown shirts. So he removes Rom and um, creates the um, SS. And they are to be led by a man called Heinrich Himmler, who, again, is going to be very important moving forward. He's already a senior member of the Nazi party, but he's now going to control the SS. By 1930, there are 3,000 SS members. And in 1932, they introduced the um, famous black uniforms um, that were known for being looking kind of very scary. They also have a skull and crossbones um imagery on them and they were designed by Hugo Boss, another brand with um, links to this period of Germany that you may have not realised before. In 1926, um, an important event called the Bamberg Conference is held. Um, Hitler decides to call this conference as a way to try and resolve a split that was starting to happen within the NSDAP. So I mentioned earlier that um, in Mein Kampf, Hitler had talked about 
nationalism and socialism uh, as things that he wanted to try and put forward and and, and promote um, in this party. Um, but what he realised that as he had expanded the party across the whole of Germany with these 35 uh, different regions and then uh, having these Gauleiters um, in these like local regional um, positions, that some of these Gauleiters had uh, different emphasis, either they wanted more nationalism or they wanted more socialism. Now, as we said, Socialism is more about redistribution of money um, for the working class. Gauleiters that were in charge of areas that were more industrial or in the um, cities where there were a lot of working class um, people um, working in factories, etc., let's say, um, they were supporting the socialist side. But in more rural areas where there may have been um, kind of more aristocrats or, you know, people of different um, kind of classes, but the emphasis with these regions was much more on nationalism and making Germany strong, um, removing uh, people from Germany that were not true Germans, whatever that uh, means in terms of um, Hitler's view of an Aryan race, let's say. Um, And Hitler himself um, wanted to emphasise more of that nationalist side rather than the socialist uh, side. And so he decides to hold this conference in Bamberg, which is in Bavaria, which is where um, Hitler's main kind of uh, power base is. And so Uh, It means that most of the Gauleiters um, who come to this conference um, or the the other party members that come are people that already um, support the idea of nationalism being more prominent. So the conference begins and Hitler allows um, people to put forward their views, their ideas about um, whether they think socialism or nationalism should be more prominent within the party. And people like Gregor Strasser that we mentioned earlier, who is a Gauleiter in northern, more industrial parts of Germany, he feels like socialism should be um, more put forward and um, he, he makes those views clear. But then Hitler comes onto the stage and he speaks for five hours um, in a very, you know, virulent, oratorical way that he is used to, to kind of uh, whipping up the emotions um, of a crowd. And he makes everybody feel like the socialist ideas are like communism. And that actually these Gauleiters that are promoting the socialist wing are kind of enemies of the Nazi party and are trying to, you know, uh, convert the party into into something that it's not. Um, So people like Strasser are completely kind of, um, you know, ignored. But what Hitler does manage to do is to persuade some other Gauleiters to come over to his site. So Joseph Goebbels being a good example. So he was um, in an industrial region like the Rhineland, but actually um, Goebbels um, switches and decides to um, support Hitler's um, argument instead. Hitler rewards him by uh, giving him Berlin as a reward. So he gets Berlin as his um, Gauleiter region. This all shows that Hitler has complete control of the party. Whatever he says goes. Um, He can stand up in front of this conference and say what he likes and everyone's going to kind of agree with him. And if they don't, they're going to be kind of uh, ignored and relegated to a much poorer position. Whereas those people that 
agree with him and try and you know keep on board with him will be rewarded and this kind of um you know wanting to fulfill the um ambitions of the leader is going to be very very important uh, moving forward So how can we explain then that the Nazi party, despite all of these changes that Hitler is making from 1924 onwards when he comes out of prison following the uh, trial after the Munich Perch, why are the Nazi party not getting more support during this time? Um, I mean, this is why this period is often known as the lean years of the Nazi party, um, because although it's grown by 1929 to 100,000 uh, members, that's still, you know, not very many people in the grand scheme of the actual population um, of Germany. And when you translate that into a uh, number of seats they're actually winning in the Reichstag, it's very, very minimal. Um, they're getting like 1% of the uh, vote in Berlin in the 1928 election. So why is that? Well, again, I think it comes down to Super Stresemann. Um, Stresemann's uh, plans that he'd put in, in place were taking their effect in these years from 24 to 29. Um, the Doors and Young plans are restoring economic stability. So um, the people uh, who were favouring the NSDAP, maybe for their um, socialist views, um, could actually put faith into the more moderate uh parties because they're spending money um, on the people um, and the the public are therefore not going to vote for extremist parties like the NSDAP. Um, also under Stresman with his foreign policy uh, plans, the nationalist wing of the NSDAP, um, you know, the supporters for, from the nationalist point of view are also kind of hindered by the fact, well, Stresman has actually improved Germany's position and status in the world, uh, getting them into the League of Nations, the Locarno Pact, the Kellogg-Briand Pact, etc. We mentioned that the NSDAP also supported German traditions, but you'll remember that in 1925, um, Paul von Hindenburg, the old army general from the First World War, was considered a big war hero for Germany, uh, very well respected. He was 78 years old um, at the time, you know, very much part of the old establishment and old tradition. You know, he's the president. So if you want to support German tradition, well, he's the president of the Weimar Republic. So why would you vote against the Weimar Republic? Again, you're not going to vote for a party that is going to try and remove um, this form of government if someone as kind of uh, famous and well-respected as Hindenburg is in control. And finally, the NSDAP is meant to be the German Workers' Party, um, but they're not really receiving any support from the working classes in the big cities at all, because if the economy is strong, then the working classes are also prospering. We've talked about before during the, during this period, um, there is an increase in wages, uh, lowering of unemployment, improvements in housing that the Weimar Republic is, is doing from 1924 to 29. So as long as the economy is strong, not many people are going to be voting for the Nazis. All it might take is for something economically to go wrong.